This episode is brought to you by Crater Lake Taxi. Competent drivers, clean vehicles, on time, anytime. Crater Lake Taxi, 541-333-3333. I am Citizen 44. Please listen carefully. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. On today's show, we have Mike Fitzgerald. Mike's this uh, super cool cat, and we've had some interesting experiences together, uh, including, but not limited to, uh, working on a teaser for a TV show, I think it was, where Mike played a cop. Freeze, sucker! Anyway, it was super fun. And I got to help with the project by shooting some video and doing some sound work. And uh, it never really went anywhere, but it did introduce me more to Mike and get to know him better. I have not spoken to Boo in two days now. She is incommunicado. We're sorry. I at first thought perhaps that maybe her cell phone was dead. My mobile phone not. But now I think perhaps my relationship with her is, in fact, dead. And I'm not 100% sure why. It's a little sad that it could be a few different things that have happened recently. One of which was uh, I had a friend, a female friend, come over the other night who was just looking for someone to talk to. And I, I do those things for and with people who request that for me. Gladly, I'm you know honored to serve in that way. If somebody wants to unburden themselves and uh, feel that what I offer is a safe environment, a genuine, authentic ear and concern, and, uh, and maybe have some interesting advice for them, uh, I welcome that and have for several years put myself in that position to um, be a friend. And I, I let Boo know about this. And actually, I let her know through a text. We were text chatting. And I actually sent her a picture of this woman, this lady, and a picture of her son. And uh, let her know that we had had some pizza on uh, the 4th of July. And anyway, super innocent, of course. But uh, it is common knowledge that Thai women can be very jealous. And uh, Boo used to tout the fact that she is not your typical Thai woman. However, she is a Thai woman. And I think that maybe this got the best of her. Now, there's other things that it could be as well. Recently, I purchased an inexpensive ticket to return to Thailand for the month of November. And I'm super excited about going. Uh, The idea of taking this trip in November was inspired by a few things. Uh, First and foremost was to go back and spend time with Boo. Uh, Secondarily, it was to take care of my hernia. Uh, I do not have medical insurance. I don't have medical insurance because I don't make enough money to qualify for regular insurance and I make just a little bit too much money 
to qualify for the Oregon Health Plan. So I kind of fall in the middle and fall through the cracks of a shitty system that clearly does not give a fuck about its, uh, its citizens. And so I am going to go to Thailand and have this procedure done to eliminate my hernia. And uh, it's certainly much cheaper and I could do a cash deal there. And at the same time, uh, get a little vacation out of it. See some of my friends who I made while I was there teaching English. And uh, so I, I was super stoked about that. I actually sent Boo a package last week, or actually she received it last week, that contained a nice card that has a picture of a dog on the front that looks like her old doga, as we've talked about before, her old dog who's very sick. Needless to say... Part of my plan of taking this trip was to spend it with Boo, traveling and having a good time. And actually, I was going to take Sam with me. Uh, But Sam told me that his mother does not want him to leave during Christmas. So as soon as I was let know this, I got online and found a round-trip ticket to Bangkok for $540. And that includes insurance. Which, fuck, man, that's practically free. How could I not go? Now, it is in the month of November, which is when my daughter Zoe's birthday is. But I cleared it with her, and she says it's okay. I'm going to head out a couple of days beforehand and and go to L.A. and hang out with my parents and my sister and her family. And then uh, do my thing, hit the 30 days over in the Thai Thai Tay Tay. And then come back and hang out again with my parents for a couple days and then come back home. So it's a really, really good deal. And I think the surgery is about 70,000 baht, which is about two grand. And I might be able to get it for less. Uh, It all depends. You know, I can go to a government hospital and uh, hang out overnight a couple of days. I don't know that they're doing orthoscopic surgery there. I think they call it keyhole surgery. They might offer that. very expensively, like 100,000 baht or 150,000 baht in a private hospital. But I'm actually not even concerned about it. I'm going to go and I'm just going to let things happen. Uh, Usually if I make too many plans or get in the way, things get a little fucked up. So I'm going to do my my best to not get in the way of some cool spontaneity. Uh, I didn't get in the way of my last trip to Thailand. I ended up with a great job, hugging elephants meeting beautiful girls, did all kinds of really cool stuff without making any plans. The only plan I made when I went to Thailand last time was a dentist appointment to get my teeth cleaned. And and that was great. And I did get my teeth cleaned and I will probably do it again uh, when I go again. So there's that. So the boo thing, it's a bit of a mystery. I've sent her a couple of emails Uh, wanting to find out what happened. Like I said, I had sent her a package a couple of weeks ago. She received it this past week. There was a nice card and a necklace that I got, handmade necklace I got from a friend at the Lithia Artisans Market who made it. And uh, I got her some other things. I got her some Wonder Woman stamps from the post office. Uh, And I actually stuck in there the Four Agreements, little tiny cute book, which she questioned me on and said, Those are your agreements. It was actually a mistake for me to put the four agreements in with that package. And I learned a lesson that you cannot impose certain things on people. I had uh, 
not only read the book Conversations with God by a local author, uh, Neil Donald Walsh, uh, something that was translated into 90 languages, and I'm sure, not unlike me, has helped millions, potentially millions of people uh, get some relief in their lives and how they look at themselves and the world around them. But I also listened to the seven hours of DVDs, which was fascinating to listen to his book. It was this incredible production where God was played by both Ed Asner and Ellen Burstyn to show God as a man and a woman. And uh, Neil, of course, played his part, but it was really a wonderful job. And so I decided to take the first DVD and send it to my father because it was the first 30 pages of this wonderful book that actually set in motion uh, a complete transformation of me. And uh, when the DVD arrived at my father's, it was broken in half. Now, I had sent this thing in bubble wrap, and it's pretty hard to break a DVD. But uh, I looked at this as a very clear message from the universe that you cannot force people to think the way you want them to think. Or as Dale Carnegie would say, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Well, there you have it. So there's a few reasons why Boo may not be talking to me. Another one is I decided to do another fundraising campaign like I did when I first went to Thailand, except I've changed the focal point to be to help me raise some cash for my medical procedure. Uh, I, you know, I'm a taxi driver, and I do make a little bit of money uh, doing some graphic design kind of on the side, but you know, I'm, I'm not rolling in the dough. I don't have the dizzle to fix my nizzle. So I decided, uh, based on the success I had of raising money for my trip to go to Thailand last year, that I would do something similar in order to raise money for my medical procedure. And uh, I don't know, she, she was on the email list. She may have uh, seen this and been put off by it. So there's a few reasons why Boone may not be talking to me right now. And I have just resigned to that, and I'm actually fine with it. I'm not overly attached to anything. I cling to nothing. You know, part of a, a lot of our suffering is that we become overly attached and cling to concepts, people, things. And so when they are taken away for whatever reason, we're devastated. Well, I'm not devastated. I'm not disappointed. I'm really not anything other than really just confused as to why it was so abrupt and why I don't know why. But that's the way it is, and I'm just going to kind of get over it. And so I am. I'm over it. I actually went through the process of deleting the previous conversations we've had out of my phone, which is, of course, also abrupt, but it, it gives me this clean slate to work with. And I need that clean slate in order to proceed forward. You know, just like when I got rid of my car and my cell phone for three years, I find that kind of that ripping off the Band-Aid thing uh, oftentimes is very helpful for me to do something different or to eliminate something I need to eliminate from my life. So what else is happening is I've spent a couple of uh, trips going to Crater Lake. 
I took a couple of PCT hikers last week to Crater Lake from uh, Medford, a hotel in Medford, actually the Shiloh Inn in Medford, not an advertising plug for them because I have nothing to say about Shiloh Inn one way or another. However, I picked them up at 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, and drove them to the PCT trailhead uh, so they could uh, go on their way. They actually flew from Canada to the United States, to Oregon, to get on the trail. And uh, this is a married couple, uh, Mike and Aaron, very nice people. Had some funny stuff, especially Canadians. He's super Canadian sounding. So, you know, it was pretty entertaining for me. And I did manage to record some conversation with them. And uh, I'll be sharing some of that with you. Everything's pretty groovy on the family front. I know things change quickly, but again, like I mentioned, Sam will not be joining me in Thailand this year, and I told him we'll just try and do it again next year, and uh, he seems cool with that, and we actually had brunch today at Smithfields, a delicious brunch, and I spent a little time with Val and Zoe and Sam over at Val's storeroom. I was looking for my passport and the 1400 bot I had saved from my last trip. And I kind of thought it was at home, but then I didn't really recall where I put it. So I kind of tore the place apart a little bit, didn't find it. And then uh, Val and I and Sam and Zoe went over to the storeroom, and I grabbed a couple little boxes that I thought perhaps maybe I left it in. And so it was fun to spend some time with my family, because I love them. I do. I don't have to be married to Val. Uh, I can have a reasonable relationship with her and uh, and not have to uh, live with her or them for that matter. But uh, it was cool to, to connect a little bit today and it was hot as fuck today, man. It was super hot out. But I'm so kind of calloused from my Thailand experience that it really doesn't bother me. Although right now in my apartment, it's a little warm. During the day, I think I've mentioned it stays cool, but at night, like all the heat that is absorbed in these walls seems to be radiating inside. And so typically I'll run the air conditioning at night, but I can't turn it on now because I'm talking to you and it would be very noisy in the background. Some other things that are going on. Uh, Joe is still out of town. He'll be back in about four days. And it's been okay. What, what I think has happened over the past week is I've realized perhaps that maybe this needs to be the last summer of love for me in a taxi and I want to find something else to do. And perhaps something with medical benefits would be really nice for me being 55, getting older, and potentially requiring more medical attention as I plot through this life existence thing. Uh, I did go for a third workout session over at Baxter Fitness Solutions. But my hernia has been bothering me some. And so when I got to the rowing machine after five minutes, uh, it really was kind of bothering me. And I let Andy know that I need to chillax a little bit on the exercise until maybe it subsides. And another thing I need to do is drop some LBs, like 10 pounds, and maybe slow down on the eating, which is only exacerbated by the pot smoking. And if I drop 10 pounds, I have this intuitive feeling that my uh, hernia thingamabobber uh, will also subside and, and give me a little bit of a break. 
but still it felt great to uh to exercise and it feels great to exercise i do feel myself getting stronger it's really important to be strong as i get older so i can continue to do the things that i want to do and have the energy that i require to do them as of today i finished reading the odyssey wow what an undertaking And actually, when I was at the gym the other day, Andy mentioned that he was ready to start reading the Odyssey and for me to start reading his book, Racing Yesterday. And uh, I'm excited to read it. It's, It's not like his first book, The Exercise Prescription, which is, you know, very uh, clinical and a step by step guide to uh, improved health and well being through fitness. Uh, This is more of a story about his boat racing. He's a two-time master world champion and U.S. and Canadian master national champion uh, rower. And uh, he trained for the uh, 2008 Olympic trials uh, as a middle-aged dude in his 40s. And Andy's a badass. I love that fucking guy. He's so easy to be with. And after having three progressive fitness sessions with Andy, I feel pretty good about going in there as soon as this uh, hernia thing subsides and kicking some ass. Because I want to get in some good shape for going to uh, Thailand. But if, in fact, the uh, hernia prevents me from doing so, so be it. It's fine. But I still want to start really getting in much better physical shape for the remainder of my existence. So that's pretty much what's going on with me. Again, on the show today, we have Mike Fitzgerald. We had a fantastic conversation And he shared a lot of cool stories with me. But let's get this party started with Mike and Aaron as they head out to Crater Lake and begin their adventure on the PCT. What were you saying about Elmer Fudd? Well, I, uh, I took the bus to school when I like the big yellow bus when I was younger. As a, living out in the country, and we had a new bus driver one year, so she was she asked everybody to put down their name and where you're sat and everything. So I put down my name as Elmer Fudd, and she actually thought that was my name, so she called me Elmer for the rest of the year. Thing I think I was about eight or nine, just you know. Around no clue knees. on Elmer Fudd. No clue. Wow, <laughs> you are a freaking genius. You should have gotten some kind of award recognition for that. Yeah, pretty good. That's pretty good. Oh yeah, I'd love to hear why your trail name is Moonshadow. Sure, yeah. So we flew down from Canada to Campo for our very first PCT hike ever. Where's Campo? Campo is the Mexican border. Oh, okay. Like the start of Southern California, right where, like, mile zero. Yeah, you fly to San Diego, then you... Yeah, I guess we have a It's about an hour and a half from San Diego, basically. Okay. Yeah, so that's where we started, and we had come from a Canadian April with snow, and we went straight into the desert. And it was incredibly hot for us anyway. The locals seemed to tolerate it, but we didn't. (laughs) So within 24 hours, we had already switched to night hiking. And I'd never night hiked before. And uh, we were just lucky enough to get a full moon on our first days. And so uh, we had incredible night hiking experiences. And I loved night hiking instantly. So um, that's how I picked up the name Moon Shadow. Okay. And I also love the Cat Stevens song. Ah, fitting. Yes. Okay. Cool. And you have no trail name thus far, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. What are your names' names' names? I'm Aaron. Hi, Aaron. I'm Mark. And I'm Mike. Hey, Mike. My brother's name was Aaron. 
and uh, how long are you going to be out? And where you, where's, you, where's the end for you? Uh, we're hoping to get to Canada. Okay. Yeah, so hiking home, basically. Yeah. Uh, we think it'll take us about six weeks. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah. And you're married. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you had done something like this before your first one, or no? Nothing quite like it. We've done, lots, we've of done lots of hiking. Yeah. Like, we did the West Coast Trail that's on Vancouver Island. It's yeah. About a, it's about a seven-day hike. Okay. Yeah. So it's... That was your first, like, overnighty thing? Well, we've done overnighty stuff. That was probably the first, like, lightweight backpacking okay. style one. Yeah. That I was the first for Mike, anyway. I had done it before, but, uh... Yeah. Yeah. He was... He grew up riding horses in the mountains, so we had to teach him a little how to lighten his pack. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> he didn't have a horse. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot easier when horses carry Of them. course. <laughs> yeah. Horse doesn't care about 60, 70, 80 pounds. Yeah, right. exactly. And you guys are carrying about 30? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're probably around 20 or so with our all our food and everything. Okay. Yeah. Have you lost weight? Uh, well, we're just starting out here. Oh, this is yeah. it? Yeah, this is the beginning? For this hike. Oh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh. Yeah, we just, we, I'm at the trailhead with you. You are the trailhead, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's we, cool. Uh, we flew into Medford yesterday and uh, yeah, just uh, heading out to the trail now. So, yeah, we're okay. like, our clothes look far too good condition and we don't smell that much. So. No, no, you're I, you're very unusual hikers for me in this car. Yeah. I use, this is why I carry, well, between hikers and uh, alcoholics, <laughs> I carry this oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. just to keep it, you know, reasonably fresh, fresh in here for <laughs> other people who may not be either one of those things. Yeah. But uh, I tend to actually like the smell of the hikers more than the alcoholics. I can say that, yeah. The alcohol. A little bit more natural. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, yeah, you've been outside and you've been like trying to kill yourself with cigarettes and alcohol. So, hmm, what smells better, that or it's kind of death like? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we were joking that it'd be pretty obvious for everyone that we were not through hikers on this side of the Sierra. We're far too, we have far too much on our bodies still. Yeah, the last time we did a thousand miles two years ago, and yeah, after a thousand miles, we were both pretty lean. So, we're definitely not there. I think it's a good uh, diet plan. <laughs> yeah. It is, yeah. The it average is, man yeah. that I know yeah. will drop 30 pounds, unless they, even if they start off thin, they're really thin by the time I pick them up. The hard part is not uh, gaining it back after you're done. <laughs> that's, well, that's an interesting problem. It, uh, it comes back whether you want it to or not, it seems. Yeah. Well, it's because you stopped hiking. Yeah. 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 Well, and we're both going back to cubicle jobs after. So well, so you have to balance that clearly <laughs> yeah. with some kind of exercise program. You know, it's funny because I, I just, for the first time in years, started at a gym yesterday. But not like a regular gym. It's a over 50 gym. Because oh, yeah. I'm over fucking 50 now. <laughs> yeah. But it's this dude, Andy Baxter, who's like a professional athlete, a medical fitness expert, which is different than just going to like the 24-hour fitness gym. Even the machines, everything. So I'm just starting to try and do a thing like live past 70 (laughs) with exercise. um, It's a good way to go about it. Yeah. Oh, you just said about it. 
kind of. Oh, did I? oh the giveaway. <laughs> One of the giveaways. Well, he sounds hardcore from another country. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. you don't, Les. Far, he He's sounds like he enough. rolled out of a mountain somewhere in Canada. <laughs> and this is what's, this is, he's really? been buried in an ice cave since Canada started. That's interesting, yeah. I don't even hear it. Well, we had a dead giveaway in our, on our last hike. I, uh, I, never, I don't think I'd ever done anything so Canadian, and I, I don't know where it came from. But we were hiking along beside another couple and just making small chats and you know, I can't remember, something about, you know, you fill up your water bottle at the last creek there, and I said, oh, for sure, can't be too sure, can ya? <laughs> and I don't think I've ever said that in wow. daily life. And I, uh, and that minute they stopped, and I said, oh, you're hiking home. And I said, oh, I gave it away. And then I stopped for a second and listened to what I said. Wow. I that sounded almost scripted, like <laughs> yeah. you couldn't even purposely say that. Yeah. Mike Fitzgerald, everybody. <laughs> I love this uh, this quote by Jung, just before he died. He said, uh, the ego's purpose was like the original TVs. It was like the horizontal and vertical button that you mm -hmm. could adjust your picture. That was its job. Right. But it became the picture tube. Right. And that's what we're living it's with It's the main today. show. We're the picture tube. Yeah. You know. Of all the trouble I've gotten into in my life, I'd say most of it was egoic. Yeah. You know, I was right. Yeah. There's a great Buddha's adage that says, uh, if you think you're right or you think you're wrong, you've probably gone too far. Yeah. I think, you know, all the chaos within our country now, it's uh, a lot of that's going on. You know, and it's the acceptance and non-acceptance of that is creating the, the great divide. I mean, we're in an emotional civil war right now, happening right in the USA. Yeah. About a week ago on Jimmy Kimmel, they had U2, you know, and they're going on their 30th anniversary of Joshua Tree tour. And, of course, they asked Bono about Trump, and he made them a best non-judgmental statement. He said, well, he goes, I can understand. I love a lot of the people who voted for him because I can understand the anger. He goes, because I come from a place where they had that kind of anger. He said, but the game has changed. He said, I think Trump really enjoys the people when they're in front of him, but I don't think he thinks of them when he goes home at night. Yeah. That's the thing that's lacking. And, you know, being a high school teacher for 24 years... Over those 24 years, I see, even in this trickle-down thing, how it entered the uh, educational system. We're not teaching our kids to be whole human beings. It's teaching to the test. You know, no longer are we teaching about compassion. Was this part of a curriculum? I wasn't part of a curriculum, but I thought, I thought many of the more outstanding teachers taught it. Right. By showing it. Sure. In fact, I remember just the other day I was talking to some old students I met, and they said, you were the only teacher that admitted he was wrong. Oh, and I used to do, I used to do this thing where um, I would go, oh, I made a mistake, or if I came in grumpy, right, I, I would come in and snarl at them, and I said, oh, okay, we're gonna do a do-over, and I would do this bastardized moonwalk out the door, <laughs> and then come back at, and change persona. So genius, though, that you were authentic. That's why. Yeah. You weren't acting anyway. You were being yourself. And... Well, I, I knew I was being a dick. Yeah. And I said, you don't deserve it, and let's start over. Yeah. Yeah, it took of a while. But you have to be aware first in order to know that you can correct that. If you don't know, right. then you don't know. And that's where the pain is, is in the not knowing what you're doing. So you can't really address what you don't even understand. Well, that's, that's kind of the problem with our president, I think, is he doesn't know that he doesn't know. You know, there is no bliss in ignorance. It's actually a very painful, shitty yeah, space. It is. Can we go back? Because I know you've had a very colorful existence that starts back in the East Coast, right? Yes. And uh, I think that will help develop... 
a mental picture of you that nobody can see you right now, but you look like a dude who was a guy back in the East Coast doing some shit and getting involved <laughs> with some things. So where exactly back East did you... I was born in the Bronx. Yeah. What year is this? Uh, this is 1950. Yeah. It was uh, the Bronx and very, very diverse. My parents were Irish immigrants, came here, you know, the American dream was a big thing. And, uh, Were they first generation? I, I'm first generation. Yeah. Okay. I'm first generation Irish okay. American. And uh, my father worked for the postal service. He started as a clerk and then worked his way up to be a, a postal inspector. So, you know, we went from living in an apartment in the Bronx the first 10 years of my life to moving into the suburbs of rural New Jersey, about an hour outside the city, in like an eight-room home with a half-acre plot. So you guys were good. Yeah, so we did, we did pretty well. Yeah. You know, big Kennedy supporters, my uh, parents really appreciated the arts. On my 10th birthday, they brought me to uh, the original production of My Fair Lady on Broadway with Rex Harrison. Wow. My uh, godfather, my dad's brother, worked for United Artists. He was like a vice president. So I, I went to the two Beatles movies premieres in the United States. The premiere of Ben-Hur in New York. Wow. You know, I was a little kid when that was happening, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. My mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was 14. We lived six blocks from Yankee Stadium, so that was a big part of my life. Yeah. Mickey Mantle was my idol growing up. You know, my mom would give me lunch money, which was like about $3 for a week. I mean, it was you know, really cheap back then. But what I used to do is I'd pocket the uh, lunch money and sneak in and get a free lunch and uh, use the money to get a bleacher seat and watch a Yankee game after, after school. Because the games, school would get out 2.30, the games you know, started at 2.15, and I was four or five blocks away. My school right. was four. So I'd run over, or sometimes I even skipped out of the last class, which was the study hall, and uh, went to the games. And I had this uh, mini relationship with Mickey Mantle. I had, actually, I mean, I used to buy peanuts, and I'd go over and I'd say, hey, Mick. You know, I know all the kids are standing around, and I, Offering peanuts so much, you go, hey kid, you know, right on time. The mix a little hungry right now, you know, and cool. and I would talk with them, you know, and then and it was really a kind of a cool thing, you know, because I went probably about fifty games one year, wow, you know, and so he actually recognized me, and the years went by. I moved to New Jersey, grew up, became an adult. I was working for the Hard Rock Cafe in between acting jobs. And I was on the softball team, and as fate would have it, uh, we were in the finals of the restaurant league, and we played against Mickey Mantle's restaurant, ah. right? And uh, it was a close game. It was the playoffs, and uh, I was up. There was a guy in second. It was the final, you know, it was two outs, and, the, you know, bottom of the ninth and all that kind of stuff. And I wish I could say I teed off this ball and hit it out of the park, but I hit a, I hit a kind of a late swing uh, single down the right field line, and the winning run scored, and Mickey came over. He was at the game, and he was failing in health. He was such this robust kind of country boy look about him, you know, and at this part, he was dying of cirrhosis, uh, and uh, he came over and said, hey, nice hit, kid, and I, I capsulated quickly. I said, hey, I used to offer you peanuts at, you know, at Yankee Stadium when you were in your prime, and he just looked at me, and he gave a little twinkle, and said, yeah, that's a good story, you know, patted me on the back, and he walked away, and two weeks later, he passed away. Wow. It was a very cool little uh, episode of my life, you wow. know. Now, so you taught high school for 20 years? 24 years. So yeah. let's hear about your, what were you like in school? Because I can imagine uh -huh. you're, you were a bit of a handful. Yeah, I was. I was a bit of a handful. I was a quiet kid until something triggered me, and then I 
when how old were you when the trigger happened and everybody had to scatter um started around 10 yeah you know the first three grades i was pretty laid back pretty shy and then my mother from the old country one of the things she brought with her she was a pretty famous uh, irish step dancer uh-huh. and so she in I was going to say, inflicted that upon me. When I was going to grade school, she made me take Irish Step Dance. Oh. And, and basically, I was really good. Yeah. I was a natural. And it was very confusing for me because I hated it, but I was good at it. Right. You know, so it got me a lot of the attention that I wanted. Yeah. But I didn't want to give up Saturdays with my friends. And right. they were playing stickball in the street. And I was in a dance studio, you know. When I was in fourth grade, uh, my two best friends were Afro-American. And... Uh, they were always going, where are you going on Saturday you know, morning? You're never available to play ball or anything, you know? And I go, oh, it's a family thing, you know? I would make some... You had to lie about I it. I lied, because I was first saying, well, I'm an Irish step dancer. Right. You know, and... Uh, <laughs> so then my mother, who was a very... She's kind of a social butterfly. Uh, interesting woman. She was an orphan. So she made up for it as an adult. She was, like, shuffled around from, from uh, family to family as a kid. But when she married my dad, he treated her like a queen, and uh, and she responded. Mm. <laughs> and so she was head of the PTA. She was head of uh, some uh, some religious thing. I think it was Holy Name Society or something like that. You know, she was had her little fingers in, in everything. You know, she was so the head of the PTA. She uh, volunteered me on St. Patrick's Day to do the. Uh, Irish jig, reel, and hornpipe in front of my school. They asked me, and I was like, "You what?" <laughs> you know. And so she made no bones about it. She, "You're doing it," you know. And I was, I was mortified and I was petrified as well. But I got out there, and, and right before I went on, she said something to me, you know, that I forget exactly what she said, but she said, "Hey, I've sacrificed a lot for you, to, you know, to do this, and it's going to help you in so many other areas," and it did actually, in sports and things like that, which I got a full scholarship to college later on. The coordination thing of dancing. Dancers are athletes, you know, no doubt right. about it. But anyway, you know, she said something to me, and it just turned my head around, and I went out and performed, and I did a good job. Right. And the kids in the school, instead of taunting me about it, they went, whoa, that, that's cool, man. Right. Hey, my two Afro-American friends, um, they approached me after and go, hey, man, you got to teach us that. You know, so I ended up teaching... These two black kids, wow, Irish step dancing, right? And the three of us performed for the school later in the no year. No kidding. Wow, what a turn of events. So, yeah, and it's also that, you know, your fears are, are much greater in your mind than in reality. Yeah, a lot that's of times. a story that you, know? you told yourself. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. And, and you'll play hard with your own story. I mean, we stick to our stories. We're oh my good. God, yeah. It totally debilitating, completely shut us down because we give so much power to our thoughts. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, but we don't know not to. Yeah. And not knowing is really dangerous. Yeah, that reverie thing, you know, you someone says something to you or you have to do something that's a little challenging and you go off in reverie and, you know, you're already writing the script. Right. And really, that script has nothing to do with what's going to happen. If you did not end up doing what your mother wanted you to do, right. how differently would the rest of your life potentially have been? Yeah, that was a big lesson for me. It's a way of seeing who your friends really are. Right. Putting yourself out there. Yeah, being yeah, vulnerable. It's, it's such an opportunity, you know, and I see so many kids at the teaching for 24 years. You know, I say, hey, you know, I'm not a Bible kind of guy, but, you know, they have that, that saying, separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, I said, uh, that's how you do it. You show yourself. And your real friends go, I'm with you, brother, you know. And the other people go the opposite direction. You, by doing that and having the courage mm-hmm. to be vulnerable and expose the real you, 
oftentimes will open the doors for others to say, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Man, I, I want to be me. Yeah. And they're tired of hiding and wearing the mask. Oh, yeah. And want to pull some of that shit off. And, and Because that's really living, is oh, yeah. being as you as you can possibly be. Oh, yeah. You know, I was a drama teacher for 24 years. I taught, I taught some English. But mostly, you know, I was the head of the drama department in high schools. Isn't that amazing, that translation that happened from that to that? Yeah, oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, I was, I was an actor in New York. And how the teaching thing happened was there was an acting strike in the early 90s, and it went on for 23 months. And it was just as my career was starting to take off. I was just starting to get steady work. (laughs) And so in that period, uh, the acting strike, and then my agent died. So I'm at ground zero here, you know. Uh, But I was in a rock band during this period, too, and living a crazy, crazy life. Uh, How old were you? Late 20s. Okay. It was like 77 through 85, that period. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was the sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, period of my life. Yeah. And then, you know, then the, we were filtering out of the 80s into the 90s, and then I was getting pretty consistent work that last part of the 80s, and then the strike hit. And I'm going, oh, my God, you know. And instead of whining, I just, well, let's see what's going to happen here. And, and I was having a problem with alcohol, and I uh, got sober. I had this great sponsor in, in, the, in the AA program. He was a six foot eight black man, Daryl B. And uh, he looked at me and said, you haven't done a fucking thing for anybody your whole fucking life. And he said, I'm gonna get you a service job. Service is gonna change your life. And he was right. And he got me a job at a clinical trial. This is like the late 80s, right? Clinical trials at New York Hospital, the Cornell Division, for kids with AIDS. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I was there for 18 passings. It was a tough job, but I learned so much about myself, and I learned so much about the integrity of uh, of human beings, you know. uh, And the payback is true. I mean, I wasn't looking for the payback. At that point, I was just, like, trying to find some peace in my life. Yeah. You know, I mean, my life was seeking the next thrill. And so, you know, in getting into service with these kids, and so many of them said, wow, I wish I had you as a high school teacher. You know, and there was, mm. I got that so many times. And I'm like, you know, I've always had this fantasy about being a teacher. And as fate would have it, after about two years of being a counselor for these kids, I uh, picked up the New York Times one Sunday. He said, we are desperate for teachers. Uh, we have a mentor program. If you have a degree, we'll pay for your student teaching. Here are the schools to interview at. And I went. You had a degree in I had theater? A, I had a double degree. I had a degree in English and theater okay. and a minor in history and psychology. I got the degree at UMass. Okay. Yeah, I started two years at Wesley and two years at UMass. Okay. And I finished UMass. You know, and I was 38 years old, starting a new career. Right. Teaching. So I've been around the block. That's what they like. They said, well, you've been around the block a couple of times. You're not going to be some like 22-year-old coming in and uh, you know trying to tame the kids that are just a couple years younger than you down. Right. You're going to have a little more of a presence. Well, yeah, to a certain extent. But in New York, I had a great mentor teacher, um, this black woman, Phyllis Fahid. And she was this big mama, head of her church choir, and she had a presence. When she walked in the room, the kids went quiet. Hmm. You know, you know, she watched me teach a little bit, and they were quiet when she was there. And she said, "Michael, she goes, you have all the ability to be a great teacher." She goes, "You got to be a little bit of a prize fighter when you're in front of the class." She goes, "You got to really hit him where it hurts sometimes to, to put him in their place." 
she goes, not not like you know emotional hitting. She goes, but like know what parent to call, <laughs> right? <laughs> Things like that. So I remember I was having a hard time, and uh, when she gave me that little speech, I remember writing on the board everybody's name with a little checkbox, and it was a positive checkbox and a negative checkbox, and uh, the kids come in, and they go. What's my name up on the board for? And I said, well, you know, if you do something great, I'm going to put a check in your, your pilot check box. And if you get three of them, I'm going to call the end of the week and tell your mother and father what a great student you are. If you get the negative three, I said, one of your parents is going to have to come for a week and then have to go through a week of school with you. And they go, oh, my mother. I said, well, you know what? I checked with the principal and you won't be allowed to go to school unless one of those parents come with you for that week. And I said, and if you don't come after a week, the truant's going to come, and they're going to they're arrest your parents. <laughs> okay! And so they were like, oh, shit, you know? So uh, These are high school kids. These are high school kids yeah. at Oliver Wendell Holmes High. It was called Holmes High. What up, Holmes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Holmes High. So uh, it happened twice. Where you had to actually... Two parents, the law. Two parents. And I remember this one kid, man, who was giving me such a hard time. And he's like the six foot seven Afro-American kid, you know. And, and he's a smart kid. But he just, you know, he was in that rebellious stage. And his mother sitting next to him. And I remember we were going through an old man in the sea, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm asking questions. But we just finished the chapter. We just read it aloud. And I'm asking questions. And she goes, I know the answer to that. Schmack. You know. He goes, why don't you, you pay attention? He looks at her. He looks at me. And he just goes, okay. okay. And he was, after that, he was mine. He became one of my puppy dogs. He uh-huh. was like, he just turned so it around. So he had his transitional moment with you. Oh, yeah. Which I'm sure many children did. Yeah, that's the payback. Even, uh, you know, I, I taught in the Valley here for 20 years. Where specifically? I taught 10 at North, yeah. 5 at Crater, and 5 at South. Okay. I hear a lot of things about the schools in Medford. and. Yeah, I didn't feel really uh, supported there. By the administration? The bureaucratic uh, end of things huh. a bit. Uh, the pay was... You know, for what I was doing, I was doing three shows a year. I got $4,200 for three shows. It's like 600 hours work, you know. And then I moved on to Crater, and when they built their new theater, and they treated me royally. I mean, I got I got treated like a, like a football coach. I got $12,600 for doing three shows. Right. So, you know, and it was worth putting in the hours. Sure. Down. And even though I put in the hours in Medford, it was just... You weren't appreciated. You know, I had some episodes where I... You know, I talked to union reps, and, you know, administrators would say, oh, talk to a union rep, and we'll discuss it at the next meeting. And then the union rep said, oh, you know, you talk to Mike, and the administrators would just say, oh, yeah, we don't care about that. Everybody wants to feel appreciated. Everybody yeah. wants to be seen and heard, yeah. you know. And, you know, if you're not feeling like you're being seen and heard, well, then... Well, this is the difficult part of being a, a young person these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, I, it may have always been this way, but maybe there's a, just a more critical struggle now yeah. of the scene and heard, and they're checking out. It's hard to get a kid to look at you in the, in the face. You, you heard what I did, right? Hmm? You heard what I did. Or you took your, your phones away from your kids? No. I was uh, on the freeway heading north with my son Sam to go to Barnes & Noble to pick uh. up the book Island by Huxley for him. Oh, yeah. Because I couldn't find another copy used in town. On the way... I was talking to him about something, and his, his nose was buried in his phone. And I had my window down about eight inches. And I reached over, and I grabbed his phone, and I threw it out the fucking window on the freeway. <laughs> he did not know that I did that. I was so fast, and it was so effortless, and I just went back to position one on the steering wheel as if nothing had happened. I was cool as fuck, like zen cool about the whole thing. 
And then we get to Barnes & Noble. He still doesn't know I threw it out the oh fucking window. And I parked the car. He said, I'm sorry, Dad. Can I just have my phone back? And I said, oh, I guess you didn't see what happened. He says, what do you mean? I said, I threw your fucking phone out the window on the freeway. There is no phone anymore. It's gone. Your iPhone is dead, dude. And it's irretrievable. And I think he was in total shock that I would even have the audacity to take his phone and fucking chuck it out the window. Mm -hmm. His mom even was a little in shock because she paid for this phone. Yeah. Well, it's like a $300 phone. Yeah. But I have to say, even though Sam has other issues he's dealing with, that issue was eliminated. And he hasn't had a smartphone since. And I bought him a, like a fucking Star Trek flip phone. If you want a phone, you want to call your friends, you want to text, but it'll take a lot longer. Here's a phone. I'll buy you this $20 phone. But now he doesn't give a shit because he lets it die and we haven't reloaded it. I told him I'd, I'd reload it for him. But it was that smartphone thing that had his attention. And now it, he's kind of saved. I think I kind of set the slave free, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a slave to other things like his gaming at his mom's, but... The phone thing was over, dude. Just like that. Yeah. Wow. I think I've only done one thing that, like, that drastic, you know, like that, you know, throwing somebody's phone, you know, or, you know, you do something, you throw somebody else's property away and you don't know what kind of reaction you're going to get. It was actually my second year of counseling kids with AIDS. I worked with this young doctor at the time and, uh, you know, most of the kids that we were counseling were city kids, and many of them had never been out of New York City. Mm. They'd never been in a forest. No nature. Yeah, no nature. And so what we did is we um, rented a couple of vans, and we took about 10, 12 kids up to Bear Mountain for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And we just ran around the woods. Yeah. Ran around. There was a music festival up there. We did a little bit of that, you know, just for uh, three or four hours, and then ran around the woods. That must you know? have been incredible. And are these kids... They absolutely loved it. They loved it. And coming back, I was, you know, these kids were so excited, and I was so exhausted. And I'm in the van driving, and coming back from upstate and getting back into the city is like hell on like a Sunday afternoon. That's what we were doing. It's a Sunday afternoon. I'm on the Tappan Zee Bridge, which is this bridge that stretches across the Hudson River. And it's one of those low bridges that it's, you know, maybe 30, 40 feet above the river. Right. Right. And I'm in this bottleneck of, of traffic. I'm just sitting there. And there's this guy behind me. I remember he was in this little BMW sports car. And a real goomba kind of guy. You know, he had, like, he lots of muscles, big gold chain, you know, uh, spray-on tan, shirt open down to, like, you know, four or five buttons, you know. <laughs> Fucking cartoon. Ha hair kind of greased back, you know. And, uh, and he's hitting his horn. I mean, and everybody, you know, you're looking like, there's no place to go, man. I mean, and I'm I'm really like, I'm pretty I'm pretty raw. Number one, I'm in early sobriety, you know. So emotions are like, beep, and I'm sitting in traffic. I'm tired from being up like for 48 hours watching these kids, and I'm sitting in the traffic. And this guy's eh, 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 behind me, and I'm like, oh my god, stop blowing your horn, you know. And and I'm, I I would look at him in the rearview mirror, kind of. You know, like give the high sign, like, hey, where do you expect me to go? Didn't matter to him. He just kept hitting his horn. And finally, we're in the middle of the bridge, too, right? Middle of the bridge. And finally, it just, like, a trigger went off. And, I, you know, I'm not really proud of this, but it was just, just shows how crazy you can be in a moment when you really don't think it through. I got out of the van, and I walked back to this guy's car. And uh, the guy sees me walking towards his car, and he, he jumps out of his car and steps to the rear of his car. 
like there's going to be the big throwdown, right, on the bridge. <laughs> I get to the driver's seat of the car, and I'm about, you know, five or six feet away from him. And he's standing there, and I realize, what the hell am I doing? But I'm, I'm angry as hell, but I... I'm You're also, already out there in it. I'm already out there in it, and I'm, but also kind of the fear factor goes in, well, this guy's a pretty big guy. <laughs> and I look over, and his keys are dangling right there. I reach over, and I grab his car keys, and I shake him from him, and I toss him off the bridge. Oh! And what happened was the complete opposite of what I thought might have happened. I thought, you know, he would, like, come at me, but he crumbled like a soggy cookie. On, on, I mean, he just went, oh, oh, my God, oh, my God. And he ran off the side, seeing if he could find his keys in the Hudson River. <laughs> and I just went back to my van, and all of a sudden the traffic started moving, and all of a sudden behind him was like, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking genius. Car and ma all together. Unbelievable. Was, but you know, but I think about it. But when I went back, the kids, you know, were all still energetic. And when I got out of the van, they went, "Mr. Fitzgerald looks like he's uh, a little hot out of the collar," you know. And when I got back in the van, no, no sound. Just of course not. <laughs> they were like, "Did Ooh. they watch the whole? Oh, they must have watched, they the, watched whole the whole scene. Whole thing. Slow motion. You toss those fucking keys in the Hudson. Oh my God. And that's not a clean river." <laughs> no that's not when you go dive in after no, your keys you might find Uncle Ernie in no, exactly wow that's crazy I mean it seemed almost poetically appropriate that although you did maintain some level of composure you made a conscious choice you didn't know what you were going to do because you thought you might get your ass kicked yeah. but you saw another window open up and it's amazing that maybe you didn't even think about it that that was just divine inspiration to just fucking grab those things and toss them. You know, I don't. It's hard to say, but I'm really glad I didn't get my ass kicked. Yeah, no, no, that's <laughs> that was the most important thing. But it's amazing that we prejudge. You thought this dude was this big, overbearing, potentially going to yeah. squash you, and you fucking killed him. You know, he was inconsiderate. And moving right along, basically, you know, uh, so I got into the teaching that I taught in New York, and then did a quick jump to Santa Fe. It was the early 90s in, in the city, and crack hit the city. And they had Mayor Dinkins at the time. Oh, yeah. And he was a nice guy, but a horrible mayor. Yeah. And just didn't know how to, uh, you know, circle the wagons and fight against uh, the crack thing. I mean, and I was seeing crime all the time. Funny story, uh, we had a kid, Daryl, was always in the hall. He was dealing drugs. We could never catch him dealing drugs. Well, I actually eventually did catch him dealing drugs, but he was always in the hall, and his name was Daryl, so we called him Daryl Hall. Uh, I'm sorry, Daryl Hall. You're one of my favorite singers, but, you know, uh, but this, this kid, anyway. I caught him with $600 in singles and fives. Yeah. And That's quite a wad. Yeah, it's quite a wad. And, uh, and then he was uh, expelled from school and shows up a couple of weeks later, brand new van, you know, jamming hip-hop clothes, and he parks on the corner, radio blasting out of the jam. His van is full of drugs. Right. And he got busted, and he got sent away. That's the kind of crazy stuff that would happen in the city, you know. Um, but I got tired of the, seeing grandmas and grandpas coming in from New Jersey, getting ripped off right in front of my eyes, you know. That kind of thing was right. happening all the time. Uh, women on the subway getting their, their chains ripped off their necks, uh, their rings pulled off their fingers. Things like that happen all the time. This, uh, you know, emotionally debilitating, just living around this, and so. How old were you around this time? Oh, forty. Yeah. And uh, just took off. I remember New Mexico being this wonderful place, and I said, I'm going to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico. You know, and I did a little research, and I said, I'll, you know, I had some money saved, 
you know, so I get out there and I auditioned for the Santa Fe Performing Arts, did a couple of shows with them, and met the drama director at one of the local high schools. A nice guy, had a brain tumor, and he had to retire. And he was a young, vibrant guy. And he saw my resume, and we talked, and he said, you're a perfect fit. And I went in, and I stood in for him for two years. He passed during the two years, too. And uh, I did two years there, and I had had enough of... Uh, the school system in New Mexico was abysmal. Uh, the kids were great. The kids are always great. But the system, the system itself was just, whew, it was, it was pretty weak. And then I, uh, I it's, it's going to sound very corny and kind of new agey, and I'm not really that new agey. But I had a dream. <laughs> and I had this Pakistani guy in my dream go, uh, rumor, Oregon. And I was like, well, what? Rumor, Oregon? And so I got up the next day, and I remember it was a Saturday morning, and I went to the library, and I was looking up Rumor, Oregon. And there was no Rumor, Oregon, but I started looking in this, this little book called Hippest Little Towns in the United States, and I came across Corvallis and Ashland. And, uh, and, it was, and then I looked in Arizona as well. Uh, Cottonwood was another. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that right outside Sedona. And uh, I applied for teaching jobs there. And within days, um, Medford school district called me and they they said you know we have a a drama teacher who's retiring after 30 years and and you're only teaching four but you have like 20 years uh, professional experience that you can bring to the table and I said yes so they interviewed me right you know it was like a a conference call Mm -hmm. and then they called me back the next day and said you're our guy so you didn't even have to come into town. You just did it over the phone? I did it over the nice. phone. And then they said, so now you have to show up. And right. we expect you here on this date. And so I, you know, went there. And uh, Were you living in Medford first? No. As soon as I pulled into Ashland, I said, oh, this is where I'm going to live. Yeah. And I uh, found a place within a day. And what year was that? That was 94. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, August of 94. And uh, then I did 10 years at uh, Medford, North Medford. How did you leave that? I had a great time my first eight and a half years, and then they changed principles, and we went from a guy who gave me a lot of latitude Mm -hmm. to someone who was clueless. He came in on a day that no principal should approach a teacher. I'm taking 40 kids to a competition. Mm -hmm. So I'm like going through checklists of, do you have your toothbrush? You know, blah, blah, blah. Permission slips, blah, blah. All that kind of stuff. And he comes in and goes, oh, by the way, Mike, yeah, uh, you know that money you make for those plays? And I'm thinking, those plays? You, well, that's what we do here, you know? And he said, yeah, we're going to take that money. What? Exactly. Well, <laughs> that's what I said. I said. That was my answer. What? And he said, we're going to take that money that you make for the plays, which is thousands of dollars. Yeah. And I said, well, that's how I run my program. He said, well, you know, you could do a cake sale or a... cake sale? Yeah. What a dick. Or, or, a, or a, you know, a car wash. And I said, you know, one, like, bulb for a... For a spotlight, it's like a hundred bucks. I said, it's an expensive thing running a theater. I said, I need the money that we make in those plays to help run the theater. Right. I said, you know, as we made money, I would ask permission to buy like a new lighting board, right. you know, things like that. And things like that happened because we were making money. Right. And he did this on, on a day that I'm totally like running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And so I was like, I was furious, actually. And so we went to this competition, and we did really well. We, like, tied some little record or something. And, you know, until I got there, they had never really won medals on state level. And we won two my first year, and, you know, it progressed. We won a couple more each year. This year, you know, the time he, this new principal came in, we killed it one year. So uh, 
I come back that next Monday and we're having a staff meeting and I'm still burning. You know, I was really delighted that we did great at the, the competition, proud of the kids. But I was like, taking our money that these kids have earned for their program, you know, we just... Yeah, they're almost financing their own class well, we, through we, the work they're so doing. We were self-sufficient yeah. because of that, you yeah. know. And, so um, be glad about that. Yeah, you, you, you would think. But it, it was going in the general fund. Right. So I was like, yeah, right, general fund, your pocket. So staff meeting, and he goes, oh, good job, Mark, oh. on that competition. Oh. And I remember all these teachers turn around, they go, oh, Mark? Oh, man. Yeah, he didn't even get my name right. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, oh, and Doug, I'm not coming back next year. Did and you was, say that in front of everybody? In front of everybody. There was no note of resignation. It was just like, I'm not coming back. Boom, back at you. And it was a total emotional thing. I'm thinking, wow, I hope I didn't, you know. This is like throwing the phone out the window. Yeah, exactly. Or the keys in the exactly. water. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I did that, and all of a sudden this uh, other teacher, John Beck, who uh, just got an assistant principal job at Crater, comes over and he grabs my shoulder. He goes, hey, Fitz, you just did this th great thing at the States. He goes... They're looking for a drama director at Creator. They had a $3 million theater. He's saying this in front of the principal? Uh, well, no. In the, in the same room, though. Yeah, okay. You know, and he said, I'll put in the word for you. You just call and, and get an interview. And so he called me said, hey, I put in the good word for you. I called, got the interview, got the job. And I spent five great years there. And he said they took really good care of it. Took really good care. I would never have left. I was writing, starting to write screenplays. And I had one picked up. And I was thinking... Oh, in my in my mind, I was thinking, "Oh, this is gonna go." I know it. Ego, right? Ego got me in trouble, and uh, and I gave my job up to my um, my student teacher, who was a fabulous teacher. Yeah. And he had all the promise in the world, uh, Matt Reynolds, who's now been there eight years. And uh, I left the crater, and then that's when that was oh eight oh nine. That's when the bottom fell out of our sure. economy, right? Yeah. And my wife, who was like making fabulous money all of a sudden went from like you know making fabulous money to no money right and and I wasn't making any money so I how long have you been married we've been together gonna be 16 years yeah well you're on uh, like uh, the short list Gene Burnett was in here he's a local musician yeah I know so, Gene yeah. yeah well you know he's also still married mm -hmm. and there's only a, a handful of you people <laughs> like Alan too it's yeah. amazing I know the married people but I know all the divorced people too but I'm just <laughs> saying you're like in this last of the handful of people that I personally know that are still together with their people, which is... Really You're the cool. subterranean mayor of Ashland. Well, I don't know what that means, <laughs> but okay, I'll take that. It seems like a lot for a little name tag. It does. So I'm impressed with... And I, I love Linda. She's really yeah. such a super cool lady. She's super cool. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't be happier. And she's doing well now. I mean, the bottom fell out. Oh, yeah. They've come back. She hung in there and, and came back royally and is just doing fabulous. She's the breadwinner. Hey, fuck yeah. yeah. That's what I say. Yeah, as long yeah. as it's all worked out, mm -hmm. then it's all worked out. Yeah. If everybody's happy, it yeah. doesn't matter who's doing what, as long as there's some kind of an agreement that this is this is good, and we, we will keep... No, we get along nicely. Yeah, that's great. We get along great. nicely, yeah. It's so it's important. Just, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but being raised in New York and teaching in New York, acting in New York, uh, and I go visit once or twice a year and spend... A, a week there, and a week is plenty for me. Is your mom still around? No, both my parents have passed. Okay. And, uh, but I feel so lucky to live here. I'm still totally uh, stoked living here. I just Isn't that look, amazing? I look up and go, whew, yeah. I tell people that I still drive around in the taxi, mm -hmm. and I, I still say, are you fucking kidding me? Just because, and this is, of course, a one-dimensional 
piece of the experience, which is the beautiful women that are all over this <laughs> fucking town. It's ridiculous. It's mm. still pretty fresh for me after 15 years. Mm. I mean, of course, I'm entrenched in the community now sure. pretty well. Yeah. But it's still, it's still got a twinkle, man. Oh, yeah. And it's changed. And yeah. it's, it's not the same. Yeah. And there's some problems. Yeah. But it's part of the world, as I said. It is. And, it is. And, and we actually may experience certain things more intensely here for some reason. Yeah. It's really funny. I'm in the process of writing a book of short stories right now. It's going to be called uh, What I Saw. And most of it's first, first person. Uh, I've read a couple of stories about different people from the third person. But uh, it, was, it was tough. It was tough. I just finished this one called Punch. And I remember being in fourth grade. I think fourth grade was a big turnaround grade for me. But uh, I you were ten, right? This I was ten, and we had these stickball leagues um, where they had, you know, we had a, a handball wall uh, with a little box, and you would have a broomstick as a bat, yeah, right, and you had one of those rubber spalding balls, you yeah. know, and you pitch it. That's and what it, stickball is, because I never really knew what yeah, stickball. It's was. a real East Coast thing. Basically, yeah. you stand there with this broomstick bat. And they had this box on the wall, and a kid pitching. And if he gets it in the box and you miss, strike. strike or if you, if you don't swing, it hits the box, strike. Got it. You know. And I remember playing, uh, and I was the pitcher. You know, and I was up against this kid. I remember the kid's name, John Deary, and he was like, he looked like the the ten year old surfer boy, you know. Yeah. And he was really cool. And most of the kids in the school, you know, were Afro American, and he was cool with them because he was a cool athlete. And I was still like working for my street cred a bit, you know. So here I am, I have two strikes to this kid, and I'm hoping, like, if I strike this kid out, you know, was, and the bell is going to ring at any moment, you know, and we'd have to go from recess. I throw it, and I hit the bottom right corner, and he misses. You know, he, he checks his swing, and it hits the bottom right corner. And all my teammates go, you're out, you know, and, and, he, go, and he, he gets really, you know, confronted with uh, everyone cheering, and I, I struck him out. And he goes, you missed. And he shoves me. And all my teammates are going, you know, shove him back. And before I even got, you know, kind of put it together to shove him back, he punches me in the nose. Mm. Just the first time I got hit in the face, he just ah. punches me. And then I reacted like, I kind of reacted like one of the Furies, you know. I kind of came at him with Crazy. ferociousness. Yeah. But uh, the Furies are uh, feminine. <laughs> <laughs> Can you demonstrate your the, feminine fury? The, the biggest, the biggest, uh, you know, and I was like, <laughs> you know, like, and uh, and my friends kind of said, well, we admired your fierceness, but, uh, you know, your form was, was in question, you know, and uh, <clears throat> I remember going home and, uh, you know, that one punch, he had kind of like cut my nose and my lip, my lip, like, it was the first time I tasted like blood in my mouth, ah, you know, he really gave me a good humble. shot, you know, ah. and I went home. My dad was this, uh, you know, my dad had a tough life, you know, he was, he was a pretty world-wise guy, and so he's getting ready for work, and I come home, and I go, hey, dad, you know, uh, I need a minute of your time. He goes, yeah, what, what's up? You know, he, and then he turns around, and he goes, well, he sees my lip, you know, and he sees my nose, he goes, well, you, looks like you took a few. And I said, yeah, I said, I gotta learn how to fight. And he goes, okay, we can take care of that this weekend. And um, that weekend, we go, and he made it like a cool, like little journey, you know. Uh, we got up early on a Saturday morning, and we went down to uh, Katz's uh, deli, 
sat there and he had a cup of coffee and a donut and I had like, you know, some, I forget what I had, but it was something I really liked from the, the deli. And then we walked and down towards uh, Fordham Boulevard, which is as far as I could go. That was like the mark of demarcation, you know, uh, that's, you don't go that's past. the boundary. There, you know, or if, if your mother or father catches you past that you're dead. Dead uh, You know, so we went past there to this place called Dooley's Gym. And we go in and, you know, it was the first time I saw my dad with other men mm-hmm. and he was really comfortable and he go and, you know, and he sees this guy who's called Jimmy the Hook and it's this African-American guy who was a fighter and he was a coach. He used to coach kids to fight and, you know, Jimmy goes, hey, Fitz, you know, he comes over and, and you know, like they were old friends. I didn't even know. My dad had friends. Your dad had the cool life you weren't aware of. You know, yeah. And all of a sudden he introduces me and uh, my dad tells him a little about me. And then, so Jimmy comes over and goes, so you've been being bullied. And I just kind of, I couldn't even answer. I just kind of shook my head a little bit. And he goes, first step in overcoming being bullied is speaking up for yourself. You being bullied? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, okay. He goes, uh. Put on your clothes. Let's get to work. And he says, "I hear you do that Irish step dancing, <laughs> right?" And I, and I was like, I turned beet red. I remember. And, and he goes, "Don't be ashamed." He goes, "It's going to help you. Believe me." And so then he started me with footwork, which was easy for me at that time. And then he started me on punching the bag and all that kind of stuff. And and then I was there a couple of times a week, and I learned how to I really, I mean, legitimately learned how to fight. Yeah. Um, but that summer. We moved to New Jersey, so I never really got to go back. Oh, and, right. But, so what, what happened, how it, how it showed itself was uh, everything went smooth for like th- about three years. I never got in a fight or anything like that. I had a heavy bag in the basement. I, I, I kept up with all the things I learned. And I, you know, I was into exercising, and I was in school sports and things like that. And I remember freshman year in high school, I had this friend. I, I made JVs as a freshman. And I had this friend, Billy Sorrero, who was a year older than me. He was a tall, skinny Italian kid. And we'd come home on the bus after football practice. And there was this varsity player, Walter Gillen. And it was a total bully. He was like a nasty kid. Big lineman, nasty kid. And uh, Billy was dark. You know, he was dark-complected, Mediterranean complexion. And he would say stuff, really racist stuff to Billy, like, you know, like, yeah, just add some olive oil, you'd be an anchovy, you know, stuff like this. Right. You know, and Billy put up with it. He didn't, you know, he just took the high road. Yeah. Just, but he crossed the line and said something about his mother. And, and so uh, Billy, you know, turns around and goes, well, if your balls are as fat as your ass, get off the next stop and we'll settle this, you know. And I was like, whoa, you know, oh, my God. So, you know, Walter gets off with Billy and all of the kids from the bus get off to watch, of course, they want to watch the fight. That's the way us humans react to things. And uh, so there's this circle, and these two kids are in the middle of the circle duking it out. And Billy's actually doing really good. He's a, you know, a wiry kid. He's not bulky like Walter. Yeah. And Walter's taking a couple of shots and uh, gets frustrated with that. And he grabs Billy, bear hugs him, and then just throw, you know, just kind of tosses him on the ground and lands on top of him. So Billy's head hits the concrete, and Walter gets up and you know, does the whole, you know, I'm going to kill you and all this and I'm looking at Billy, and Billy doesn't even know where he is. And I go, Billy, are you okay? And he goes, who are you? He doesn't know. And I'm realizing, kid has amnesia. You know, he doesn't know who he is. And he's a sitting duck. And I said, you know, hey, Walter, you know, stop. Uh, you know, I think Billy's really hurting. And Walter, oh, he, he's, if he's hurt, he's going to hurt a lot worse or something like that. 
and he shoves me out of the way, and I just, you know, I kind of lost it, because Billy was like, you know, my best friend, yeah. and he shoved me, and he started teeing off on him. That was my first, like, emotional blackout. Right. I just went, uh, Walter became a punching bag, and the next thing I remember is my, um, my baseball coach pulling me off, going, Mike, you know, because I was considered a shy kid, Yeah. and I'm looking down, and I'm seeing, you know, this bloody face, and, and I'm there, oh my God, you know, and I was startled you know it kind of woke me up I was like oh my god and uh, I just ran I remember it was a mile and a half from that bus stop to my home and I just ran my lungs were burning when I got home and I had you know this uh, you know, Catholic schoolboy kind of you know shirt and blazer and, and it was all covered with blood oh my god you know and I ran in the front door and ran right upstairs and my parents were like wow you didn't even say hello what's, what's going on here and, and then a minute later Billy's dad is there and you know, and uh, he goes, my son doesn't know who I am, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, and then I have to go down to the police station, the whole whole thing, you know, and it was, it was such a lesson in, like, being able to control that balance between, you know, I remember Jimmy the Hook would say, you know, hitting somebody is the last resort. Right. You know, and I went on, I did martial arts after that, too. And it was What this, happened to Billy, though? Billy came out of the amnesia about two days later. Yeah. And Walter, uh, they put a, it's funny because it found out that Walter's father had a, a problem with violence too. Oh. And they put a restraining order on Walter and his dad that they couldn't come within like, you know, 100 yards of me or yeah. something, you know. And uh, it's, you know, the cop, they had had several incidents uh, of bullying with Walter before. So he never got his comeuppance. Right. And so, you know, the cop kind of went, you can ride the bus with Billy and Walter and nothing's going to happen. I said, nothing's going to happen from here. He goes, I'm not afraid of you starting anything. I'm, I'm afraid of you finishing it. <laughs> and I said, no, no, don't, don't worry. I, I won't do anything. I said, you know, if you tell him to behave, I'm definitely going to behave. I'm not going to throw any, any coals in the fire or anything. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was one of those growing up incidences that, you know, I, I realized, wow, you really have to find the balance within those heated situations, like, right away, right away. You can't just react. Because, I mean, it was an emotional thing for me. I thought someone I, I really, you know, loved as a person was going to get hurt. Yeah. And it triggered me. Well, yeah, that's the fight, flight, or, yeah, know, yeah, freeze. And, you, and I, you know, and he was helpless. You know, he was helpless, and I just, you know. Well, you were spot, you saved his life. I mean, your lizard brain is there for a reason. Yeah. It's supposed to be under your control. Mm-hmm. But it definitely still, on some level, serves a purpose. Yeah, it does. What else can I say here? Giving you my, you know, my teaching experience here, it's, it's all been pretty wonderful. I mean, the 20 years I've taught in the Valley, my wife, Linda, one of the things she, she says, I'm jealous that you, know, you can be walking down the street and some kid from 20 years ago is going to go, Mr. Fitz. Yeah, and it's you know, pretty cool. And it is really cool. Uh, it's such a payback. It reminds me that, yeah, we're here to serve all the time. Well, that's my tagline. I know. I mean, it's well, it is what it is, you know? know. And I'm actually, this is why I'm pretty fulfilled. Yeah. yeah. Because I like being in service. Yeah. It's not even a pat on the back, but it just it's feels good to know that sure does. I'm doing something for somebody and not just doing everything for myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people would say I'm a selfish prick on other levels, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> that's fine. Well, we all are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the service thing. I'm not a religious person at all, but I'm, I am, I believe in prayer and things like that. And one of my prayers is, how can I serve today? 
Yeah. I, 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 before I, I even get on my feet laying in bed, that's one of the things, first things I say. Yeah. And just, how can I serve today? And uh, Well, you can serve by asking the question because yeah. by being available, yeah. you're already in service ready to go. Right. And that's what it is. It's just about being ready to go whenever it's needed. I remember uh, a Bill Murray interview. They asked him how he got to be so famous. He said, oh, I just kind of made myself available. And that is, it's about making yourself available. Yeah. I, but I don't want to impose my condition on other people, even though they may you know, want to take care of me. I would like to leave on a high note, mm -hmm. if I could, please. Like, maybe while I'm just fucking sleeping. I keep asking for that. Just let me not wake up. Right. I don't want to get sick again. I don't right. want to deal with hospitals. I don't want to do any of that. Yeah. Let me just check out super easy. My dad had one of those privileged deaths, you know, uh... He died a little early for me. I mean, he was in such great shape. He was like this Jack LaLanne kind of guy. Huh. <laughs> and he was in great shape. He was 75, or just about to turn 75. I think it was like a week or two. Yeah, he was a week away from his birthday. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was living life. He was running. He was running in races on the senior division, you know, and uh, gardening and, you know, bowling league. He was an active guy. Having you know? a good time. Having a good time. Yeah. Went up for a nap. They were going, my mom and him were going to a dance that night and just never woke up. Fucking genius. We're not taught how to deal with it, really. Yeah. So we don't really understand right. how to deal with it. Right. And that's kind of life in general for us here on the planet. Yeah. Knucklehead. You know, like there, I've heard several people say, well, you know, um, I don't want to meet my maker today, but I'm looking forward to the experience. Today's fine with me, yeah. really, honestly. I mean, I'd like to get through the rest of this conversation with yeah. you. And not have it. Although, like, you know, that's a good yeah. podcast. Right. If I died now, yeah. then actually the last eight episodes might be worth something. <laughs> because right now, yeah. hardly anybody knows about it. But if I suddenly drop dead, there is something to that. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that yeah. could be interesting for my children going forward. Well, that's, yeah, well, the now is all you got, you know. Uh, actually, one of my favorite lines in, in movies of the last couple of years, uh, that movie Boyhood. Yeah. One of the last lines in the movie is, you know, they're sitting on this this mountainside looking out over this terrain, and it's this young guy about to enter college, and he's met this girl. And I think it's a little induced with, like, mushrooms or something like yeah. that, right? And they're sitting there, and, he, and she's going... God, isn't the, isn't the now amazing? And he goes, yeah, it just keeps on coming. You know, that's funny because we talked about Gene Burnett. There's, he was my last conversation. There's mm -hmm. a lot of parallel. He talked about a mushrooms experience he had. He was a He's a Tai Chi teacher. Mm -hmm. All kinds of similarity and paths between these two conversations. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we all have a thread. Yes. There, we are undeniably connected. Yes. We're standing on the same fucking piece of real estate. First of all, this is not metaphysics or religion or anything else. <laughs> we're physically together. Yeah. Undeniably, oh, we're together. Undeniably. Yeah. So if we could just start from there yeah. of being reasonable, knowing the fact that yeah. we are all connected by just standing on the same piece of dirt. Right. We should be able to do some work from there. One of the things, you know, now with the chaos within our country, you know, like I mentioned before, there's like a, an emotional civil war going on. And some people on both the left and the right are kind of acting out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I realize we're not Republicans and Democrats. We're Americans. You know, we have to remember, you know, uh, we're all in the same country. And then 
And that separation, you know, acting out, it's not going to do anything. I think this is a time where we have to be at our best. We have to uh, model our best behavior, not our worst behavior. You know, not act like we're a, a miffed teenager, you know, but start acting like adults, responsible people, you know, and with real things that we can attain for the betterment of, of people, of each other, and our country, you know. Instead of acting out, shooting people in a, at a benefit ball game, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, just judging, you know, uh, at, at every level. That's not going to do anything. Developmentally where we are, too, even compartmentalizing us as Americans, why don't we just stick with what we know? We're human beings. Yeah. These other things are all labels anyway, which makes it very difficult for, for us. Sure because this is the separation mechanism. It is. This is drawing lines in the sand that don't exist. Yeah, I mean, you can go deeper with, with that one. With, I mean... Religion could be a separatist thing. Well, they're you know, all anything. Being a nas- anything that separates you from me in right. any way, other than the fact right. that we are both human beings, yeah. is a problem. Right, right. We can barely deal with the gender fucking difference between us, let yeah. alone adding all this other shit on top of us. Right. We can't even deal with the reality of what we are. Mm-hmm. How are we going to now add all these other components of confusion and conjecture and story? And not deal with the fundamental stuff, which yeah. is us. It's all a distraction, all that other stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and I know that these are mechanisms to try and understand the experience more, but I think it actually does quite the opposite. Yeah. And, and that's unfortunate. And, and you talk about acting as we are, which I, I agree, if between here and here on my cajon is the beginning and end of evolution... We're right fucking here, dude. We are acting like 12-year-old masturbating boys wanting to play (laughs) games and jerk off and kill each other and do stupid shit. Mm -hmm. So we clearly have a long way to go. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the whole by the people, for the people, it's how we started, and it's really not that anymore. It's, you know, by the 1%, for the 1%. Well, somebody actually needs to repurpose the Declaration of Independence and show that our forefathers actually knew that this was going to be a problem because it is a system that is built with failure in it because it is forcing others to do a job that is impossible, which is to manage those that should be self-governed. So when you put someone in a position of failure automatically, then you've already put yourself in a position of failure. When in fact, if you educated us all to think the way we need to think, then we'd be able to self-govern and and take care of what we need to take care of. But we've asked other people to do our job for us. And that's why it's fucked. Well, you know, uh, the word patriot has been so abused. I liken to the uh, definition of patriot by Thomas Paine, who was on the Declaration of Independence. He said... A patriot is someone who protects their country from their government. Right. And I think that's that, the Declaration of Independence. And there you go. So I don't I don't see anything as them or they or one percent. Those are us that we let run amok because we didn't take the responsibility necessary to not let that happen. So mm. it's not their fault. They're the fucking Buddhist teachers going, Look at what you've let happen. Thing just like no one can hurt your feelings. You have to allow something to happen. Right. No one has the power over you unless you've given your power away. We have collectively given our power away. And that is going to be our evolutionary job is to take that back and do what's right for all of us and not let that happen anymore. But it's it's going to take Well, change comes out of chaos. Yeah. We are definitely in chaos. No doubt. Look Look at Crater Lake. Crater Lake was this explosive, volcanic, violent eruption that turned into something absolutely beautiful. Yeah. 
I'm hoping that we don't have to go down that cataclysmic direction in mm-hmm. order to correct and become humbled. I'm hoping that certain natural elements of our development within the next hundred years will help us get to that give a shit about each other stage. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah, it would. It would. Um, yeah, I get fingers crossed. <laughs> well, I have no faith, but I have plenty of hope because if I know that something can happen, well, that means any of these other knuckleheads that I'm fucking hanging on this blue planet with can know that this can happen. It's instruction. We need to be trained. Yeah. Think about that. All the energy and, and money that we put into training people to kill, if we put that same energy and repurposed it into training people how to love right. and be together, that's pretty much it, right? But there's no money in that. There could be, though. <laughs> there that's, could be. Actually, yeah. that's the short-sightedness. Yeah. Is forget the money. You know, even Boo in Thailand says to me, she says, Mark, money's not important, it's necessary. Once you eliminate the need for it, right. then it just poof disappears because it's not real anyway at this point. It's ones and zeros in a computer. It's not even real. It's pretty fake. The whole economy thing, the whole capitalistic idea is a fabrication, a man, M-A-N-ufactured concept that only serves a few people right. and only ever did. So it is up to those other people that it doesn't serve to go, yeah, we, we're going to do this now. Anyway, I'm super stoked that you came and hung out with me. Well, thank you. I know you're, you've been busy, but you're, it's summer. Yeah. You're not teaching. No, I'm Are writing. you acting and you're writing? Writing and I'm auditioning a little up in Portland. And uh, Have you done much acting since you've been here? Yeah, well, I've done a number of plays with different, you know, there was Art Attack that they're now up in Seattle. I did about four or five plays with them. Camelot, I did a play with them, a couple of other groups, done plays with. Has it occurred to you, and I'm sure it did, mm-hmm. that you ended up in a town with world-class fucking theater? Yeah. It's really funny. Uh, when I was in New York, my agent said, hey, would you like to audition for OSF? And, you know, it's funny, you know, I was still... How old were you when this happened? Oh, I was early 20s. Yeah. You know, I just, I was in the Boston Rep uh, from like... I was 19 till I was five or six years in Boston Rep. So I was like 25. Yeah. And I just got to New York, got this agent, and she said, oh, you want to audition for the you know Oregon Shakespeare Festival? And I said, do they still have stagecoaches out there? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I was like, I was afraid to leave New York. I thought, oh, you know. The, Your comfort zone. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they know me here. I don't yeah. Wanna, and now I live here. <laughs> Well, that's like your whole fucking dance experience, dude. It's yeah. it's a repeat performance. Yeah. All this opportunity is represented in different ways mm-hmm. to see if you're gonna, you know, fucking grow some balls and do something. We'll see. And you, well, you did. You grew all the balls you needed to get here, <laughs> and now you're here yeah. in this amazing town with theater abound, and you've had this teaching experience, theatrical teaching experience oh, yeah. here. Oh yeah. And now you're you're doing pretty well and having a good time. And I'm hoping this summer to finish this uh, book of short stories you know uh and a couple you know a couple of stories i told are the stories that will be in the cool. book yeah and i'm really excited about it and getting lots of good support you know alan hicks has uh, been really supportive cool. and kind of like uh almost like uh doing some minor editing for me and things oh, like good. that and well you guys have worked together so that yeah. must be oh yeah it's great natural. i really honor his his opinions about things yeah and so, yeah, that's been a lot of fun. And it's really a, a reawakening to a lot of stuff that helped me get here. Well, I talk about this, too, with uh, Alan and with Gene, is that as we're getting older, our confidence level is 
kind of at a, at a good space. Mm-hmm. We're not really feeling threatened by much anymore, mm-hmm. and we're pretty easy in our skin, and we may even be more open to more new, fun things, even though back in the day, maybe when you're 60s and 70s, you were kind of done. Now I think people are like energized, especially here maybe anyway, yeah. like yeah. this. I'm 55 and I'm starting a podcast. Yeah. Well, I think about it, you know, I've been really lucky. You know, I was an actor, musician. I had careers in both of those things. And then in my late 30s, you know, because of an acting strike, I had the courage and was listening to my intuition enough to start a teaching career. Right. And I thought I was just going to do it to the end of the strike. I really did. Right. And I ended up, it gave more to me than I ever dreamed and ended up loving it and followed, you know, taught in New York, taught in Santa Fe, taught in uh, Oregon. And, you know, 24 years later, I'm going, wow. Well, you were called to service. You weren't serving as an actor. And, and the universe knew that, even though you needed to do that to get to the next place. I got to know myself a lot. as That's true. Uh, it's a me, me, me kind of uh, world. And you got the me, 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 but you needed the me, me, me and the acting experience to be a world-class theater teacher. Yeah. So those things all lined up pretty serendipitously. There was a lot of synchronicity in your life. Yeah, there was. When you look, and I think that's... Maybe we don't do that either. Mm-hmm. We don't look at all these different places where this beautiful thing was, even if it was ugly and yeah. uncomfortable and fucking horrible, this beautiful thing that was given to us, that was the stair step to the next thing. I remember Bill Clinton said this. He just said, I, I look at opposition as an opportunity. Right. And I always think of this one story, and I'm going to close on this one. Linda and I went to Mexico with her parents. Yeah. And uh, her parents, you know, were in their 80s, early 80s at the time. And we went to this lagoon called Yakul. And it's the coolest place. It's like they had at the mouth of the uh, lagoon, they have this net that keeps the sharks out. Uh So it's like in the lagoon, it's like finding Nemo. All these amazing fish. You don't have to worry about sharks. Right. And so you're floating. So we were going to teach them to snorkel. They were a little too old. We drove to the lagoon in the van, and Linda had the keys to the van, and she put them under the towels, you know. So, and we go off, and we snorkel, and her mom and dad were hanging out, you know. And it was, you know, it's beautiful. They were just hanging out. But he sees the key by the towels, and he, he thinks, oh, that's not safe. So he puts it in the pocket of his bathing suit, forgets about the key in his bathing suit, and goes for a swim. <gasps> so, uh, and, he, and then he gets out. And realizes the key isn't in his pocket, right? So we get out and we we go, where's the key? And he said, oh. And he was totally shamed and embarrassed about it. And instead of us going, what did you do? You know? So I just said, I said, Harry, where, where did you swim? And he goes, I swam from there to there. I said, okay. And the water was crystal clear. Right. Right. So Linda got on one end. I got near that. We just started slowly, like, examining the bottom. And it was maybe about 20, 25 feet deep. It wasn't really that yeah. deep, right? As we're doing this... I see this guy in between us. He sees something. I look as it was almost it was synchronistic. He sees it, and he goes down and he goes Chrysler keys, and he says it. And I said, "Hey, you from New Jersey?" <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah, I'm from Patterson." And I said, "Oh, thanks." I said, "That's my keys." He goes, "Oh, glad I could help out." You know, but it was the attitude, right? That we didn't lose. We said, "Well, this is going to be an opportunity here." Yeah. And and we found the keys yeah. in, the, in the bottom of a lagoon. Yeah, and and it was because I really you know, some we, fucking goomba handed them to you. Yeah, <laughs> one of my brothers from back east. That is so funny. So it was it was a you know it was a cool experience and, and makes a good story. And life is a cool experience. I feel sorry for those 
that can't do. Yeah. They have no choice. And literally, people, a lot of people have no choice. Yeah. Well, don't. if you whine, you're wasting time. I know. But some people, <laughs> again, are oppressed. These poor refugees, all these people around the oh, world yeah. who are just, they have no choice. Yeah. They're barely surviving. Well, that's all of our fault in a way we've lost connection. It is all of our fault. This is all of our responsibility. Yeah. Homelessness, hunger, all these things are inexcusable, mm. inexcusable problems. Saying that there's not enough water for everybody, being surrounded by fucking water on a blue planet yeah. is inexcusable. Right. Having the sun above our heads since the beginning of time and not having free energy and all the things that we need for each other right. that we could share right. is inexcusable. Right. It's exactly. Cool. I love you, brother. Okay, I love you too. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in, man. Thank you. All right. Well, that's the show. It was a great conversation with Mike, and uh, he really told some pretty good stories. Uh, As far as Boo goes, still no word. It is what it is, so I'm cool with that, and uh, there's not much you can do about things that you can't do much about, and being 11,000 miles away and not having the ability to literally communicate with her makes it impossible to do anything further in this particular relationship. Therefore, that is on hold, and that's fine. It's all fine, actually. It's great to be here with you, as it always is, and I am thoroughly enjoying my experience of sharing with you, and uh, I hope you're enjoying the experience as well. A little shout out to my mom. She had some surgery this past Wednesday, but she is on the mend. She's doing well. It was actually elective surgery as she uh, approaches the 80 mark. I think she is uh, doing her best to hold on to whatever she can in a way that allows her to present herself uh, the best she can and, and, and feel good about that. So get well soon, Mom. I love you. And, uh, and to all y'all out there, always the best to you. May your days be bright and you get everything that you think that you want and you definitely should be getting everything that you need word your mother's uncle Citizen 44.